0: with me in your Bibles or your apps to um, John chapter 1, verse 15. John chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Tripping hazard. Good morning. My name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible. It's good to be with you. Um, One of my favorite film genres uh, is the mystery genre, Uh, in either book form, uh, in writing, or in film form, and particularly one of my favorite films is Interstellar. Has anyone seen Interstellar? A few of us? Yeah. Maybe half the room. It's a good movie, isn't it, Russ. I had a friend once say that it was the greatest film he'd ever seen, and he may or may not be the youth pastor of this church. <laughs> ever, made. ever made, I'm sorry, I misquoted him. Ever made. Not that he'd ever seen. He's seen them all. It's the best one. In all seriousness, though, no, I, I, love, I love movies like Interstellar uh, because they make you think, Uh, Really, that kind of movie, that that mystery genre of film, what it causes you to do is the story is building and building and building. And there's moments in the story that are either maybe a little confusing or um, you're not quite sure exactly what's going on. But as you reach the culmination, the the end of the story, the climax, it kind of fills in the details of what has happened leading up to that point. In other words, it illuminates and makes sense of everything that came before it. And a really good mystery genre type film will make you want to go back and rewatch the whole thing. Um, because now that you know what you know, uh, everything is a little bit different. It's almost like the second time through is the first time watching it. Once you've seen the end and you get to go back and you understand sort of what the, the point of the film is and what it's building towards, all of the details leading up to it now take on new meaning. Um, Not that before, when you watched it, the first time that all of the details were kind of pointless or so confusing that you couldn't understand anything going on, right? But that they take on a new level of significance and meaning once you reach the end. We've all got books and films like this that we love, right? Sherlock Holmes, the Harry Potter books, uh, the show This Is Us... Um, the Sixth Sense, right? I don't know. Maybe some of you. Okay, some of us have seen it. It's a scary one, but has any... I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, it's about Bruce Willis, if you haven't seen it by now. I mean, it's your bad. Um, it's 20 years old, for God's sakes. It's a, it's a great movie. Um, it's really... It's a little difficult to watch. Um, it's a scary... I guess it could be considered a scary movie, but really it's just kind of an intense film. And... There's this character, Bruce Willis, and as he's going through the story, um, I think he's like a child psychologist, and so he's meeting with this this young man, uh, this little boy, and the little boy, you know, it's that famous line, I see dead people, right? This little boy is troubled because he sees dead people, Um, and there's these, you know, scary scenes where he's seeing this dead person doing something, this ghost, as it were, and as the film builds and builds, and there's these kind of strange moments where Bruce Willis's character um, is in these scenes that don't make a, a whole lot of sense completely, um, or you're not quite sure what's going on. And then at the end, it just hits you. He's been dead the whole time. And it, it just, he's the dead person, right, who thinks he's alive talking to this kid about seeing dead people. And you go back and you rewatch the film now, and it's brilliant. It's one of those one of the best in the genre. It just smacks you across the face like, whoa, this is incredible. Other, other movies, uh, I think Columbo, I was told that that would, that would reach our older audience. <laughs> <laughs> TV show, there we go. Yeah, obviously that wasn't for me. Um, Momento, uh, any Christopher Nolan, if you know who he is as a director, any of his films um, do this. Even something as simple as the cartoon Scooby-Doo, right? There's, there's a problem. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Always the sound effects. There's this problem. There's this confusion. Something's going on uh, that the, uh, the characters are trying to figure out. And as you get through the story, you reach the end. You find out who the bad guy is that was causing all of this trouble, and everything kind of makes sense. We love films and books and stories that employ this genre, um, of mystery and intrigue. Each of them begins with a problem or a set of unclear circumstances, and as the film or the, or the book climaxes, everything comes into clear vision and begins to make sense. And this genre and style of writing and filmmaking is a, is a helpful representation of what John is doing in our text this morning, in 15 through 18. Understanding the culmination of the story right, of the Bible, pushes us to rethink the entire thing, all of what God is doing throughout the scriptures. In other words, Jesus, right, spoiler alert, Jesus is the big reveal of God's story, isn't he? He is the lens through which now we can make sense of everything that comes before and after him. Jesus is the narrative key, that unlocks the story of the Bible. And he's also the narrative key that unlocks the story of our own lives. So I want us, as we go through this passage, just verse by verse, to remember two things this morning. Just because Jesus is the climax of the story of the Bible, of the Scriptures, doesn't mean that he's the end of the story. I want to be careful when I say that. Jesus is God, right? He is everything, and we will spend eternity with him. So in that sense, you could say, well, he's kind of the end of the story. But often we think of, when we think of the story of God, we tend to think of the story ending at the cross after forgiveness of sin has been given, right? That's basically what we need to have now fellowship and access to relationship with God, and so that's kind of where the story ends. The story keeps going, though. There is a final, complete restoration of all things that we are working toward. And so, don't forget that. It's not the end of the story. The cross isn't the end of the story, though it may be the climax of it. Secondly, Jesus being the climax of the story doesn't mean that everything before Jesus came is pointless. So often, and we're going to spend a good chunk of our time this morning talking about this, we tend to see the law and the prophets um, as something that's pretty much overlookable. A new word for you. Overlookable, right? When we think about the story of God, we look at Genesis 3. Man sinned. The first man, Adam and Eve, failed to live up to God's call and standards. And so we tend to kind of then turn the next you know, I don't know how big your Bible is, 600 pages uh, to Jesus on the cross. And we kind of think that everything in between there, not so important or necessary. That's not the case, though. So don't forget those two things. Jesus isn't the complete end of the story. The cross isn't the total end, though. that is the climax. And just because Jesus is the culmination of the story doesn't mean that everything that happens before it is pointless. As C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, the sun, but because by the sun, I see everything else. That's how we see and understand Jesus as the climax of our story. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning kind of unpacking how that makes sense. I want to read for us, as we begin, our passage one more time, but from Eugene Peterson's uh, translation, The Message. I find that his translations are sometimes really helpful and kind of give an interesting take on the story. John pointed him out and called, this is the one. The one I told you was coming after me, but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding. All this came through Jesus, the Messiah. No one has ever seen God Not so much as a glimpse, this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. Pray with me for a moment. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Um, Spirit, we invite you. We recognize your presence with us. We ask that you'd help us to feel the warmth and the love and the goodness of the Father this morning in particular. Would you illuminate for us and make our perspective wider and our gaze on you bigger and our wonder and our awe for your word more lovely, more fantastic, more whole this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Amen. Okay, first, there's an interesting theme going on here. Um, Is that an empty slide? Yeah. John is kind of doing something a little tricky. Not tricky, but he has this theme in this passage, just in a few short verses. It's this before and after theme. Did you catch it? Right? He talks about John the Baptist making a way for the Lord... Right? Saying John was born before Jesus. And yet, Jesus being before all things comes before John the Baptist. Before and after. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Is what John is saying this morning. And then he goes on. Moses comes before Jesus. Right? But Jesus is greater than Moses. And then he ends with The law. The law comes before grace or the grace of the cross, and yet grace is greater than the law. So John's kind of playing a little literary word game with us, and he's showing us the significance that Jesus is greater. That he is the culmination of the story of Israel. That he comes before all things, and he's greater than even Moses. Look at verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In all four gospels, Jesus entered public ministry after John. So in a society where, you know, age, how old you are, and precedence, right, that, that, those two things... Um, bestowed particular honor on someone. And so John the Baptist, or rather John wants to make clear this morning to us that although John the Baptist comes before Jesus, calling out and making a way for him, he is by no means greater than Jesus. Jesus is the point of the story. Now verse 16. Here we get into the good stuff. For from his fullness we have all received grace. Grace. Grace upon grace. I want to talk about a couple of the translations. Um, This verse is a little tricky. The NIV says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. In other words, John is talking about the law, right? And the grace that comes with Jesus Christ. And so the question is, is John saying, That the grace that we received in the law, that the Israelites received in receiving God's words, the Torah and the the prophets, is that we're being completely replaced now by something totally different. And I want to submit to you that I don't think so. I think that what John is talking about is something like an accumulation of grace. Grace that builds on top of more grace. Grace. If that makes sense. Not grace that's replacing something else. A better translation might be out of the ESV. For, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Or the message gift after gift after gift. So it's, an, it's, an, it's, a replacing, it's not a replacing grace. It's an accumulation of grace. I wonder for us here what our heart posture is towards the law and the prophets, towards the Old Testament. If we could do a quick survey of the room, a quick heart survey, where we could measure sort of our emotional feelings and our thoughts towards the Old Testament, towards God's law and prophets, what would we find out? What would we learn? Does Jesus' coming make the Old Testament scriptures even more sweet and beautiful to us? Or are we breathing a sigh of relief as we realize, oh, okay, I think that means I don't have to worry about that old book, that outdated book. I suspect that some of us would lean heavier towards enjoying reading the Old Testament, while others of us would lean heavier towards reading maybe Paul's epistles. If we're honest, there's going to be a variety of perspectives and emotional reactions to the Old Testament, No different than many of the authors of Scripture. Think about it for a moment. Consider David. What is David's thoughts on the law? In Psalm 1, what does he say? Blessed are those who what? Delight in the law of the Lord. David, For David, the law is something to delight in. I mean, he loves it, right? How can he say that? When Paul... Right? What does Paul say? I found that the very commandment, right, that the law that was intended to bring life, actually brought me death. So you've got delighting in it, and then you've got Paul who's like, dude, that thing is going to kill me. Like it's, it's condemning me. How can we have such divergent opinions on the law, even among the authors of Scripture? And the answer is simpler than we think. It's because they're both showing us different facets of the same diamond, right? God's word is this incredibly complex diamond, and and depending on what angle you stand to look at the diamond, you're going to see different facets or angles of that diamond. It's, and, it, and then you bring in the element of light and you shine light on it from one perspective and then you, just, you can keep the light there but move to another side and you're going to see something different in it. And so they're both describing the same diamond with just different elements of it. When the light hits one way, it illuminates differently than it hits another way. It's not that David and Paul have contradictory views on the law it's that they're reaching, or they're, they're each touching on a particular facet. For David, he rightly says that obeying the law feels life-giving. Delighting in the law of the Lord, the words of God, is life-giving. Is that true? Yes. All of God's word is life-giving. And yet for Paul, he rightly says that obeying the law showcases our inability to live up to God's righteousness, which reveals to us the sin That separates us from God and puts us in need of His grace. Now, is that true? Absolutely. They're not two contradictory opinions, they're both hitting on the same uh, diamond that's showing different facets. Now, look with me at verse 17 For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or the message says it this way. We got the basics through Moses. Moses gave us the lowdown, right? He gave us the basics. And then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding God, all of that continues through Jesus, the Messiah. So John is here, he's kind of beginning to offer us another brilliant Rembrandt painting, right? Another incredible, he's bringing into focus, hey, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is what it's all about. What did Jesus come to do? To set the captives free, right? What did God use Moses for in the Exodus? He used him to set the captives free, right, from the bondage of slavery under the rule and the thumb of Pharaoh. And in the same way, John is saying Jesus has come to set us free. I want us to look at this comparison. Look at how intricately John is tying just four or five verses here to the the story of the Exodus in chapters 33 and 34. You've got the Word tented among them here in John, and then you've got God gloriously dwelt in a tent. The disciples saw the Word's glory. God's glory passes by Moses. Jesus is full of grace and truth. God abounds in hesed, right? That that subversive kindness, loving kindness and truth. We receive grace upon grace. Exodus 33, 14, Israel finds grace in God's sight. The law was given through Moses. Moses was given the law. Jesus is mediator between God and humanity. Moses is mediator between God and Israel. No one has ever seen God. No one can see God's face and live. The Rembrandt. John, in just five verses, ties together an entire story. A significant story. Maybe one of the most in the entire scriptures. John wants us to see... That Jesus is the greater Moses who comes to rescue all humanity, not just Israel, from the bondage of slavery to sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God. He is that which the entire Old Testament is pointing to. Many in the West who scoff at the God of the Old Testament, at Yahweh, feeling like he's this barbaric mean, angry, harsh taskmaster, many in the West who scoff at the God of the Old Testament have the same core issue as the Pharisees do with Jesus in the New Testament. And that issue is this. The description of God being espoused does not fit my understanding or expectations of what God is like. The description of God... In the Old Testament, it doesn't, it does not, God cannot be like that, right? That's just, is not how, that just, it's not, I don't have categories for it. Therefore, he can't be real, or I at least don't have to take the Old Testament seriously. Jesus is the reflection, though, of the Father. They're the same God. We need that reminder because often we see the Father as that mean, harsh, Old Testament bad cop. And we like to think of Jesus as this nice, clean, gentle, good cop, right? The common way for many in our city, in our post-Christian secular city, to think about Christianity is that it's just another religion full of rules, full of laws, at least the Old Testament is, and so I'd rather not have anything to do with it. For many, the New Testament feels almost too different or too disconnected from the Old to be able to hold together both of them. I think for many folks outside the church, they look at Christians and are dissatisfied with the explanations given to them for why the Old Testament is significant or they find it highly convenient when the church seems to ignore certain parts of the Old Testament, which we've done before um, many times. And to be fair... I don't think that we've always done the best job of explaining the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament and why they're both significant. It's not that it used to be rules, laws, do this, don't do that. And now we have this fun-loving, hippie Jesus but that's often the basic explanation that we give to people. Hey, you know what? I know that you're struggling kind of with your understanding of God. Listen, the Old Testament's it's old, right? It's called the Old Testament for a reason. Funny, we should actually probably call the Old Testament the First Testament. Many people like to call it, refer to it as the First Testament and then the New Testament as the Second Testament because old implies what? Outdated, unnecessary, useless. But it's not. The First Testament is grace that gets expanded into even more grace with the Second Testament. The Israelites understood the Old Testament as just as much life-giving, beautiful, and profound as you and I understand Jesus' life and teachings. It would have been shocking to them to hear someone think that the Old Testament was purposeless or or unnecessary. God tends to speak to his people in ways that they can easily understand. Throughout the the, the body of scripture, you see God over and over again preach and speak through his servants to his people and relate to them with uh, circumstances and parts of the culture that they can easily understand. You think about the temple, right? Temples have been around for a long time. And God doesn't come on the scene and say, here's how I'm going to relate to you. Forget the temple and all these pagan temples that are out there. Um, I'm going to relate to you by coming on a spaceship. I know that's silly, but seriously, God comes to us and he literally condescends, lowers himself, um, and he comes to us in ways that we can naturally get. And so the Israelites would have been totally familiar with the idea of a temple. And he comes and he relates to us In the same ways that many in the surrounding cultures would have understood how they should relate to a deity, but it's in the subtle, small differences between those temples, the pagan temples, and the temple of Yahweh, that God reveals that he is the true God. God tends to relate to us in ways that we understand. You can see this in kings, appointing a king for us in the Old Testament. Now... Would it be totally offensive to a group of ancient Near East Israelites to say that the Old Testament or the law and the prophets was basically useless and unnecessary? Yes, that it wasn't a gracious gift. They would have had no category for that. And yet, so many of us, many believers, either follow Jesus while ignoring two thirds of the Bible that point to him or Unbelievers totally dismiss Jesus altogether because they feel the Old Testament is a burden that not even Jesus can bear. Not even the goodness and teachings of Jesus can bear the weight and the burden that is the Old Testament in the eyes of many outside of the church. And if we're honest, I don't think that that claim is exclusive to those outside of the church. I think many of us struggle with our understanding of the Old Testament But think for a moment, if a person of fame in our culture today, in our society, a person of notoriety were to come out and say, you know, uh, these sacred, valued teachings that have been around for a long time, really, they're they're not necessary. They're useless. Um, we, We don't need them. Would that person be applauded or would they be shamed? In our city, I think they'd be shamed. They'd actually be told, how that's almost like racist of you to say such a thing. It's bigoted or ethnocentric. What does that mean? When something's ethnocentric, it means that they're, you're taking your standard of how a culture ought to be, the values of your own culture, and you're laying it over someone else's and saying, you need to live up to my standard of what's good and right. And so when we think of the Old Testament in that way, We're actually really hurting our witness. So, how can we call the Old Testament a necessary, gracious gift that God has given to us? Firstly, because it tells the story of God's people before the church. That in and of itself is crucial. But secondly, the story of Israel, the Old Testament, is necessary for properly understanding that to which it points right? To Jesus. You can't fully grasp the person and work and, of Jesus and the significance of what Jesus came to do until you accept the entire story that Jesus is building on a foundation that's been set. Scott McKnight in the King Jesus Gospel says this, the story has an aim. The consummation. When God will set straight as God establishes his kingdom on earth. That consummation comes with a clarification that leads us to read the whole Bible all over again. God originally placed Adam and Eve in a garden temple. But when God gets things completely wrapped up, the garden disappears. Instead of a garden in Revelation, we find a city. The garden, in other words, is not the ideal condition The ideal condition is a flourishing, vibrant, culture-creating, God-honoring, Jesus-centered city. So what Knight is saying here is important. Not only is the story of Israel necessary for understanding the story of Jesus, but in the same way that Israel's story is pointing to Jesus, Jesus is pointing to the end of all things, to the consummation or the completeness of everything when all things are restored. We need to, often we want to, again, begin our story with Genesis 3, the fall. We close our Bible and we open up again to John 3.16. We skip everything in between and we need to, like John is here in our text today, we need to recognize that Jesus is the culmination of a story that's been building for a long time. When we devalue the law and the prophets, we tend to miss the link the incredible links between Yahweh's character and the character of Jesus. We so quickly overlook the incredible story of God's patience with Israel, with this hard-hearted, stubborn people. But when we do that, we miss the significance of Jesus' patience with his disciples. We see that he's over and over again patient with them as they just don't get what in the heck is going on. We overlook God's continual forgiveness and mercy to a hard-hearted people. We overlook the difficult and brutal reality of even animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. We've got to look at these things square in the eyes to understand how significant Jesus is. right? Jesus comes as the final sacrifice for us, doesn't he? A lamb whose blood is shed for the sins of all people. So we've got to understand the whole story. What happens when you pick and choose which scriptures you're going to follow or submit your life to or consider as good and worth following? You end up with a God who looks an awful like like you do. John Mark Comer and God Has a Name. He says, the nice thing about made-up gods is that they agree with you on everything and let you live as you please. Unfortunately, they're incredibly boring and flat and humdrum because they don't actually exist. Then there's the even more terrifying possibility that you'll end up with a God who is real but isn't the one true creator God and who plays to all of your I wanted all now desires only to turn on you once you're hooked in. Yahweh might not look exactly like we want him to, at least not at first, but as we begin to see his character, as his beauty starts to come into focus, we realize that who he is is so much better than who we wanted him to be. Now, verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Like seeing the tail of a comet as it goes by, Moses only caught the afterglow of God's glory. But because Jesus is one with the Father, John is saying you are seeing the divine when you look at Jesus. That's who you're looking at. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has made the Father known in ways that Moses could have only dreamed of. What this means is that Jesus shows us what our Heavenly Father is like, doesn't He? In closest relationship with the Father actually means that Jesus, that phrase that John is using there, it's an idiom in their time that has to do with being in the bosom, like a, like a daughter with a mother or a son with a mother, That Jesus is in the bosom of his father. That's the connection and the closeness that the father and the son have. John is saying that Jesus is basically in the father's lap, as it were. An idiom for that, that greatest possible intimacy. We see that same kind of wording used in Ruth when we were in Ruth earlier this year. In Ruth chapter 4, it says, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. It's the same idiom. In her bosom. Right? And that, what, is, what do you think of? You think of close relationship, tight-knit. And it's that closeness that shows us that the character of Yahweh, the Father, and the character of Jesus are one and the same. But we struggle to believe this, don't we? Many of us, when we think about the Father, our Heavenly Father, We deep down, we struggle to recognize that he really is good and that he really is for us. And that's because we've got broken fathers, earthly fathers, or what many call father wounds. I know for me, I grew up without a father. Never met my dad before. Um, Talked to him on the phone when I was 18. But beyond that, never met him. God the Father feels distant. I don't know that I feel like he's angry at me or that he's um, unhappy all the time, but I often feel, I just feel a disconnection, right? I don't feel there's a closeness there. I often find myself praying to Jesus more than I talk about the Father. And that's because I don't know, I haven't experienced that warmth of an earthly father in a way that would shape and help me to relate to God the Father. And I think many of us, our dads, or lack thereof, um, have shaped our understanding of the Father and how we relate to Him. I often find myself feeling like the Father is is, um, apathetic towards me or, or maybe slightly disappointed. Sitting in heaven, kind of nodding His head, just kind of like... When are you going to get it together? But he's certainly not close, and he's usually not super stoked with what I'm doing. And that's because I don't, I have my, I have my relationship with my own father, right? It's apathetic. It's, it's non-existent. And so I don't, I don't have that category. But I think that what we need to do, and something that's helped me as I've thought about this this week, when I think about my little girls, um, when, my, when my four-year-old or my two-year-old run up to me, right? And they've just fallen down. They've scraped their knees. There's crying. It's emotional. They're, they're, they're so bummed. And they, they run into my arms, right? And they, they're in my chest, as it were. And that is not because they're afraid of me. <laughs> it's not because they think of me as an angry daddy who's, who's always mad at them and frustrated and disappointed. No, they run to me because they know that daddy's safe. Daddy's going to take care of me. Daddy will be with me when I feel hurt. And he'll listen to me. We've got to have that same perspective for Yahweh, for the Father. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. John 14, 5 through 10 Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip, right, being stubborn and impatient. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. He doesn't get it. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? I am the Father. I am one with the Father. Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing his work. When you see Jesus, you are seeing the character and the nature of the God of the entire Bible. From beginning to end. I love that John here, in verse 18, when he talks about Jesus making God known, that, that word that he uses for known is where we get the word exegesis. Ex, it's uh, exegesito. i not very good at pronouncing Greek. But this is where we get the word exegesis. So what John is saying, and I should tell you what exegesis means, exegesis is the critical explanation uh, or interpretation of a scripture or a text. right? So it's how we understand the Bible when we study it. And John is saying that Jesus is the exegesis of God the Father. That if you want to understand the Father... And be able to explain the Father. You look at Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Another way that that same word that John uses here is, is used in the New Testament. Is when uh, it, it's used to talk about to tell a narrative. Right? To narrate a story. Uh, in John, uh, Luke 24 says, Then the two told what had happened. And there's that word again, exegesado. Um, in that sense then Jesus is the narration Of God the Father. He literally narrates for us here's what he's like. Look at me and you'll see him. Jesus is the glory of God that Moses could not look at, but that you and I can now see. John is using the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't make the law null and void. Or pointless, because Jesus is the law. Jesus is literally the law of God. He is the words of God. Jesus is the continuation of the teaching of the Old Testament. Enfleshed. Instead of God just speaking now to his people through tablets, through words, through stories that Israel would have rehearsed and memorized and spread from generation to generation to generation. Now God himself continues to teach them, he continues to instruct them, but he does it through his own son, putting on flesh and bone and showing us what the father is like. He continues to teach us like he does to the Israelites throughout the scriptures. Leslie Newbegin says, Moses had asked to see God and God had given him the Torah the gracious and true teaching that was to guard and guide Israel this was a good gift it was a good gift but it was not the life of God himself jesus builds upon the law by being the law in flesh by continuing the life-giving teaching of the law for us there is massive grace in the instructions of god But now the instructor himself comes as a grace to us. Finally, John is mentioning something here for us in the beginning of his gospel that will eventually get Jesus killed. His claim that Jesus and the Father are one is what gets Jesus killed. We often want to separate or categorize the Old Testament as a different thing that God's law is this harsh uh, law that's, that's given by a kind of, almost a different God in our minds but John here is saying that even in Jesus' own words later in the Gospel of John that, that he and the Father are one, that you can't delineate and separate the two the two testaments from one another and categorize one as something not great or not worth your time and another that's good. It's literally what gets Jesus killed. Right? Jesus is being questioned by Pilate, by the religious elite, and it's when he talks about his oneness with the Father, when when Jesus puts himself on the same level as Yahweh, that's the end. Now, they're say, now they're, they, they feel he's saying he's king. There's no one but, that's king but Yahweh. Yahweh alone. And it's when Jesus equates himself with the father that gets him killed. And so we have to take seriously and marvel in the Old Testament. That it's this incredible story of God's love and patience and mercy to us. To his people from old. Jesus totally subverts our categories, and he pushes us to have a paradigm shift about what it means to follow God. And often, we, we reject some of Jesus or maybe some of the Bible because to accept those laws and the, and the stories in the Old Testament costs too much, we feel, it's not worth it. I, my reputation uh, among my friends, my secular coworkers, my non-believing friends—if they knew that, you know, I, I took all of the Bible seriously, like that's going to cost me something. And the irony, the irony is that so many of us struggle to submit our whole lives to Jesus, to the, the entire story of God's Word, because we're convinced it's going to cost us too much. When in reality, it costs us far more to follow our own way to pick and choose than to follow the whole way of Jesus. I wonder, when you think of the Father, when you think of Yahweh, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Do you think of Him as this tender, patient, loving presence? Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for grateful for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us that we often mistake for harshness because we don't totally understand the the cultural idioms that Israel faced or or, or had in, in the Old Testament scriptures, God, and Jesus, I just pray for, for us as a body that we would become more and more a body of believers who has a holistic and robust understanding of the whole story of God. That we wouldn't, our story wouldn't begin with Genesis 3 and then pick up again in John 3.16. But that we would value the entire story of God, pre-fall and post-cross even. That the whole thing is valuable and meaningful and brings purpose and significance to to little things like, I don't know, art, work, vocation. God, we need the entire story. But often we're content to settle for, I've sinned, Jesus saves me, that's good. That is the core of our faith. And it is non-negotiable. And we're grateful, but would you help us to be people who are willing to study the scriptures and not just either accept them blindly but never really let them take hold in our life or reject them altogether because we can't make sense of them? But would you help us to be people who are robust in our understanding and our pursuit of you and your word, grow uh, our, our knowledge. Not just so that we would know more stuff, but so that we would marvel and stand in greater awe of you. Father, would you continue to shape our understanding of you as a loving, kind, merciful, gracious, patient, forgiving, faithful, Hesed God? You love us, Father, and you are for your children. For those of us particularly who struggle with the father wound because our earthly fathers have hurt us, or left scars and pains that are difficult to break free that impact the way we see you. I pray Jesus for freedom. Spirit, would you begin to loosen the bonds of those wounds, of those scars that we often stay in and cling to because they're they're safe, they're normal. They're what we're used to, even though they're killing our understanding of what the Father is really like. Would you break in, Spirit, in power and in glory and in goodness to show us what you're truly like? We love you. Thank you. Amen. We'll enter a time now of communion as we do each week and celebrate Jesus giving himself for us. The Lamb of God, his blood shed, his body broken, symbolized in the bread the juice I want to invite you if you're Christian you call yourself a Christian and follow Jesus to take communion this morning encourage you to take it with someone next to you don't take communion by yourself it's for us to do together pray with someone near you and I want you to ponder the oneness of God ponder that reality that Jesus is one with the father that when we look at him we see the father We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.